Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. In this season of Advent, the church around the world induces a sense of eager anticipation for the coming of the Christ. Not only his birth to walk among us, but also for the presence of his spirit among us now and for his return in glory to bring to effect the reconciliation of all things, including all of us, to God's own self. I'm reading tonight from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I feel it's important to tell you all that tonight's sermon is a reprise of a sermon that I preached at this church in Advent of 2016, and again in 2019, and again in 2020. I'm always inclined to be apologetic to those who have heard any sermon more than once. I know it's kind of an endurance race. But it is one of those sorry, not sorry kinds of apologies, to be honest. I'm mostly not sorry because there is a word here that can be part of a solution to a problem that the church created in the first place. And it'll have to be repeated often and for a long time to undo some of the damage that's been done. And I'm also not sorry because I just really love this text and I love this reading of it and it gives me a lot of joy to remember it again with you. And because not writing a brand new sermon this week gave my brain and spirit some good rest. And I am grateful for that. (laughs) Thanks be to God. So from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Say her name, Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashan, and Nashan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Say her name, Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Say her name. Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Say her name, even if the text does not, Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Isaiah. And Isaiah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiod, and Abiod, the father of Elikim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. 
and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Say her name, Mary. Mary, of whom Jesus was born, called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A content consideration for the sermon tonight. In the exposition of many biblical texts about women, including this one, we are going to bump up against the reality of sexual assault and exploitation, and we'll call it reputational abuse. If that's not something you're ready to engage tonight, I hope that you will make a different choice for this time. We trust you to do what's good for you. I'll begin tonight with a preliminary remark. Preaching on biblical texts that have to do with sex and gender is harder than it used to be. I'm not complaining. The complexifying of gender identity and expression is instructive and important for me. But let us name the reality that where the biblical text requires recognition of the historical patriarchy and its detrimental effects on girls and women, at least as far as the Bible is concerned, we are talking about girls and women identified as such at birth and slotted into the historical hierarchy of humanity on the basis of that gendered prescription. So tonight when I am speaking of the women in Jesus' genealogy, I'm speaking of cisgender women's experiences though I am hopeful that their experiences will be instructive for all of us alike. Let's see if the Holy Spirit can make that happen in spite of me and in the light of the delicious complexity of our time. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, Mary. These are our mothers in the faith. Tamar, Genesis 38. She had one job, get pregnant and give birth to a son. That would make her husband Ur happy as he would be assured that the wealth he worked for would stay in the family and increase the status of his name. But Ur died before that happened. Some said he displeased God and God struck him down. So according to religious law, Tamar was given in marriage to her dead husband's brother, Onan, in hopes of getting the baby boy who would carry on the dead husband's name. But her brother-in-law, Onan, didn't want to produce a son for his brother, though he did not mind having sex with his brother's widow. So whenever he had sex with Tamar, he um, performed an evasive maneuver. He soon died as well, which some people thought meant God did not like that particular evasive maneuver. But that's a whole nother issue. Get it? Issue? Hey, I'm just reading my Bible here. 
Anyway, that was strike two for Tamar in the baseball game of life, and her father-in-law, Judah, was wary of giving her another pitch, i.e. his last son, Sheila, and yes, that was his name. So Judah sent Tamar home to her own daddy to live with the heavy disgrace of procreative failure, not unlike the heavy weight of infertility or miscarriage or even a calculated decision not to have children in our time except then it came with the certainty of economic destitution because your daddy couldn't take care of you forever and without a husband or a son, you were basically broke forever. But Tamar was not one to take her destiny lying down or rather she would lie down, but on her own terms. She heard that her father-in-law, Judah's wife, had died, knew he'd be lonely, assumed he'd be horny, surveilled his travel plans, disguised herself as a sex worker, and planted herself in his path. Judah took the bait. Without cash on hand, because it's hard to travel with fat young goats in your wallet, when morning came, he left the deposit she asked for, his signet ring, a piece of jewelry bearing his mark, used for stamping his representation onto treaties and contracts. Tamar disappeared into her own life with his ring, and when Judah sent the goat in payment, she was nowhere to be found. But she was pregnant. When Judah heard about his daughter-in-law's unwed belly swelling with child, children, actually, as one pregnancy turned out to be twin babies, he was enraged that she would shame the family this way. He ordered that she be brought to him and literally burned for having sex outside the bounds of marriage. But Tamar showed up with the signet ring, playing it like the double five in a close game of dominoes, and Judah was caught. Tamar did not burn, and she never married but she did show up in the genealogy of the Messiah, the savior of the world, God with us. Rahab, the book of Joshua, chapters two and six. She had one job, provide for her family, her parents and siblings, all the beloveds God had given her any way she could. She turned to sex work, the only thing that men would pay women actual money to do. She was careful and smart, and when she was wealthy enough, she built herself a house on the outskirts of town. They wouldn't let her situate the best little whorehouse in Jericho within the city limits, so Rahab's house was attached to the outside side of the city's defensive wall. She was literally marginalized. The madam herself occupied the front room hollowed out inside the wall so Jericho's randiest sons could make payment in the lobby and pass through to the back rooms to complete their transaction. Enter Joshua, Moses' successor as the leader of the scrappy liberated Israelites looking for some territory to claim as their own. Joshua knew about Jericho and that damn wall making it the most heavily fortified city standing between Israel and total conquest. He needed intel to make a battle plan. So he sent spies, gave them an expense account, told them to find out all they could. With money in their pockets, the spies found Rahab's house pretty quick and soaked up all the learning they could stand in one night. 
till men in the king of Jericho's police force showed up at daybreak to arrest the foreigners. Apparently, Jericho had an intel operation of its own. Rahab was a quick thinker. She hid the foreigners, extracting from them a promise that when their army came, they would spare her and her beloveds. She threatened to sound the alarm to the king's henchmen if they didn't agree. They agreed. And they worked out a signal for the Israelite soldiers when that day came. Rahab would dangle a crimson cord from her window outside the wall. If everything went according to plan, no one in her house would be harmed when Jericho's walls came a-tumbling down. It worked. Rahab and her family were installed on the outskirts of the Israelites' encampment because they weren't allowed inside the bounds of those fine people either. And from there, either Rahab continued in her line of work among the Israelite men, or she got legit married. The text does not say... But either way, she got a baby daddy out of the deal, a fish-faced Israelite named Salmon, who happened to be the great, 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 great grandson of Tamar. She named her son Boaz. And there is Rahab in the genealogy of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God with us. Ruth, the book of Ruth, all four chapters. She had one job, take care of the mother-in-law she inherited when all the men in the family died, which she didn't mind as much as we might think. She and Naomi had taken a shine to each other and basically got gay married before gay marriage was cool, promising to make their home together and share every single thing they had with each other until death did them part. The only problem being they didn't have anything. When the two women resettled in Naomi's homeland, they had less than nothing to live on. Ruth, as a refugee from Moab, a race despised by Israelites, was pessimistic about their prospects. But Naomi knew the religious law of her religious kin. There were provisions for widows like her and refugees like Ruth. So she sent Ruth to glean the wheat fields picking up stalks that the reapers left at the edges of the fields for the sake of the poor, just like the Torah demands in Deuteronomy 24. Ruth came home with armfuls of wheat and a report about the generous farmer who had let it fall, Boaz, who happened to be a distant relative of Naomi's deceased husband. The same laws that required Judah's sons to marry Tamar in succession would also apply here. As next of kin, Boaz owed marriage and economic security to Ruth, the widow, sort of. Her Moabite ethnicity likely negated the law in this case, so Boaz would take some persuading. With Naomi's help, Ruth was <clears throat> very persuasive. She waited till the end of a long day of hard labor threshing the grain harvest when Boaz and all his workers would eat and drink till they passed out on the threshing floor. In the dark, she crept quietly to Boaz's side and, the text says, uncovered his feet. Now, if you're thinking that uncovering someone's actual feet in the middle of the night while they're sleeping is not a sexy move, you're right. It's euphemistic, okay? Ruth needed a husband, and the law was almost, but not quite, 
on her side. So she did what she had to do. Because Boaz was chivalrous, when he told the story of how I met your mother to his children in years to come, he would not say what actually happened that night. What he would say is that he married that Moabite. To hell with what the neighbors thought. To hell with the rumors they spread about Ruth and Naomi. Even when Naomi induced lactation and breastfed Ruth's first child like it was her own. That biracial boy Obed would turn out to be the granddaddy of David, king of the Israelites. And there is Ruth in the genealogy of the Messiah, the savior of the world, God with us. The wife of Uriah, called by her name Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. She had one job, wash herself in the mikvah the ritual bath of religious purification after her period. She recited the prayers by heart as she dipped herself in the water as the law commanded. But David was the kind of man who could sexualize anything any woman did ever. And as Israel's king, David thought he could and should have whatever he wanted. And what he wanted now was the woman he peeped in her prayerful private ritual from his palace rooftop. He sent for her. He lay with her. And now let us practice a vow of rigor and interrogate the text for the sake of exposing the truth that Bathsheba was raped by a powerful man and sent home in disgrace with only her trauma for company, something no bath would wash away. No matter that Bathsheba's husband Uriah was an officer in the king's army, away at the battlefront fighting for his life and King David's honor, but it complicated things when Bathsheba <clears throat> turned up unseasonably pregnant and David had to figure out how to preserve his own honor. A plan to get Uriah to sleep with his wife on an impromptu shore leave did not work. Uriah slept on his own front porch out of respect for his fellow soldiers still in the fight. So the devious and desperate commander-in-chief resorted to the next best thing, murder by proxy, sending orders that Uriah should be pushed to the front of the fray and all his comrades ordered to fall back, leaving him exposed. It worked. Uriah died in battle. And David again sent for Bathsheba, and this time he married her, adding her to his unhappy harem of wives who saw right through him. Man after God's own heart, my Israelite ass, they could be heard to mutter for centuries afterward. But Bathsheba loved her son Solomon, not the first child she bore to David, but the one who lived. And there is the wife of Uriah, not an adulteress, but a sexual assault survivor in the genealogy of the Messiah, the savior of the world, God with us. Mary, from Matthew chapter one. Virgin or not a virgin? Or do we care? For sure, the early church fathers cared 
a lot. Women's sexuality was super freaky to them. Women's bodies, women's issues, women's power. So they did their best to erase it all from Jesus, to scrub him clean of women's taint. Yes, I know what it means. I looked it up in Urban Dictionary. At one point, they even decided it wasn't enough for Mary to be a virgin when Jesus was born. They added on a couple of extra biblical doctrines for good measure. The doctrine of perpetual virginity, meaning that Mary never, ever, ever, ever had sex even after the birth of the Christ child. And the doctrine of the immaculate conception, which contends that Mary's mother, Anne, was also a virgin, making Mary doubly pure, both in conception and in conceiving. And for all that sexlessness, she gets the gold halo round her head in all the sacred art, forever glowing, her shine never dulled by proximity to a penis. Which kind of begs the question, actually, of whose sexuality they were truly afraid of. Hmm. But isn't it entirely conceivable, pun intended, that Mary was a typical teenager in trouble? Perhaps herself a survivor of sexual assault? The Roman soldiers stationed in every little village pretty much took what they wanted, didn't they? Or perhaps as sexually curious as any adolescent in any time, bold enough to say, here I am, to more than one interesting summons? Either way, there she is, captured by the eye of God, who scoops her up and plops her pregnant self down in God's own salvation story, not without consent, of course. The angel asks, and she says, sure. And there is Mary in the genealogy of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God with us. I would not be so bold about defying a centuries-old doctrine of the church, except that Matthew is giving us every clue we need to see behind that shiny golden glow. He has literally named every scandal he knows about in Jesus' lineage, particularly by naming the women who endured them, the women who overcame them, the women who triumphed over circumstance and came out on top, if you will. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. I think Matthew is trying to tell us something, don't you? I think Matthew is trying to tell us that God does not make plans the same, the same way you and I make plans. God does not account for every catastrophic contingency. God does not carefully swerve away from every possible ditch. God does not polish away all the rough edges. Indeed, by way of this beginning to his gospel, Matthew is showing us how God surveys the world when God is making plans, and God stops at every problematic point, every sticky wicket, and God goes, ooh, 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 right there. I gotta get that one, I gotta get her in my plan, her in all her trouble, all her trauma, all her pain, all her powerlessness. Oh, I'm definitely gonna use that to save this whole forking world. God is in the good place, of course. <laughs> and here is why I think it matters. It matters because when God is thinking about you, God is not interested in making all your trauma and trouble disappear. God does not want to scrub you down, polish you up, 
before you can be useful in whatever God is gonna do next in this world, God still loves. It is the weird and wonderful testimony of our ancestors in faith that it could be, it could be exactly your trauma and trouble that make you most useful in God's own assessment. I make my peace with the gospel report of Mary's virginity by thinking that this is Matthew's way of saying, and now the church's way of saying that, well, this is how God works. You've got a crisis. God sees an opportunity to do God's favorite thing, which is to redeem whatever shit we've gotten into and make it work. God makes beautiful things out of us. That is not to say that God inflicts pain or ignores pain or minimizes suffering. It's simply to say that in a world where that stuff is inevitable, where we sin and are sinned against, God is present with, not avoidant of, the screwed up people God loves. It's one of the best things we know about God that sometimes all we've got to offer God are handfuls of brokenness and bitterness, shame and sorrow. And God says, okay, I can work with that. Here's what we're going to do. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps, and if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.